If you want to pull out your listening guide that you received on the way in and open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 7, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, we're going to look at the seven churches of Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Anybody ever owned a Chia Pet? Uh, does everybody know what I'm talking about? A little ceramic deal that grass grows out of the head to form hair. Uh, there are all kinds of different versions. There are Star Wars versions. Uh, there are athlete versions. There's a Mr. T version. Uh, and, and at Christmas, my family loved me enough to get me a Bob Ross version. Uh, you remember, remember him, the painter with the happy trees? Some of you are too young for this. You don't even know what we're talking about. Uh, it, uh, it didn't work. Uh, Bob's hair never grew in. Um, maybe it's just a curse on our house. I don't know. <laughs> so it's, it's one thing, and it's, it's got lots of different versions. Just whatever version you want is the version that you can purchase. I think that's how the world looks at what we're doing tonight. Right? We're just sort of all the same. We're humans are humans. We're all born. And some people opt to be the secular version. Some opt to be uh, an uh, agnostic version. Some opt to be a Muslim version. Some opt to be a Hindu version. And some opt to be a Christian version. And what we're doing tonight is just celebrating our um, version of being human by, by being followers of Jesus. And if there's one thing that I've learned in this kingdom series the last four weeks is that we are not the same as everyone else. We're not better than everybody else. We don't have uh, something within us internally that uh, makes us better or different somehow. But when we committed our lives to Christ, John chapter 3 says the Spirit of God came and gave us new life. We were born again. And in uh, Corinthians it, chapter 5, it says that we are a new creation. So what we used to be, we used to be like everybody else, but now in Christ, we are something brand new. And in the kingdom version of that, there is the age that we're living in now, and then there is the age to come. And in the age to come, everything and everyone will orient themselves around the lordship of Jesus. Right now, just a small fraction of humanity is doing that, and, and those are Christians. Those are the people in this room, hopefully, orienting their life around the lordship of Jesus. Lots of people give token, hey, Jesus is great, and maybe we should throw God's name in in this thing, and maybe we should make it a part of this deal and that deal, but Ultimately, they are not submitting to Jesus as Lord, but we are. The Spirit has come and has given us new life. And so we are living in this age, but we are from an age to come. It's a supernatural work. It's hard to understand. And yet this is what the scripture tells us. And so if there's one thing that I've learned in the last four weeks, I mentioned it before, is that I am not from here, which is great news. Because if you're just from here, if you're just from the age that we're living in now, then, then there, are, there are caps on possibilities. There are lids on things. Um, so we talked last week about being unified and reconciled to one another across ethnicities. If we are just from this age, there is very little hope at uh, a meaningful reconciliation. That is only something that comes from the age to come. And so as Christians, that reconciliation belongs to us because we are the only ones who can actually do it. And how sad it is when we let other people do an imitation of it instead of doing it for ourselves because that is something that belongs to the age to come. Right? A peace that passes understanding no matter what your circumstance is. Hallmark tries to imitate it, but it's just an imitation. It's a faux version. That kind of peace belongs to the age to come, but Christ has opened up the age to come and has shared it with us now here in this present age. And so we can live with peace. We can share peace. We can give peace. Remember as Jesus sent out the disciples to do ministry, he told them to preach about the kingdom of God, to tell people to repent, to pray for people, and they could leave their peace on a house because that kind of peace belongs to the age to come. And he shared that with us so we can have that ministry as well. We are not from here. And so because we're not from this age, uh, life should be different. Right? We are not just the Christian versions of being human. We are something totally separate and different. And so I want to finish these four weeks talking about if all of that is true and we are from this other place, 
then I think that should be reflected when we get together. Uh, every Sunday or wherever we are gathering, whether it's in a community group or over a dinner table or wherever it is, um, it should look and feel differently. Um, so how does the kingdom of God and its present nature here affect the way that we gather as a church? So I thought a great place to start is in the book of Revelation, because why not? And in the book of Revelation, just a real quick survey, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, is now uh, up there in, in age, and he's lived a long, full, godly life, uh, ministering to people. He's a pastor of pastors, and he gets arrested for uh, proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Lord. That was against the law in the Roman Empire. You had to say, Caesar is Lord. You just couldn't go around uh, saying that someone else is king. That was against the law. And so we caught up with him, and now they put him on a, 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 in prison, uh, but it's a prison island, so they've sailed to him and probably other prisoners to this island and just left them there. There was no way for him to get off the island. And it says on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday, that's the day of the resurrection, he's in the spirit. And so he's essentially having church, but he's all by himself. And he gets this vision. He hears this voice and it's Jesus behind him. And uh, well, let's read uh, some of that. Let's start in John chapter one, verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the context in all of this is, that is happening is John is going to write this letter. God is going to give him a tour of heaven and things to come. He's actually literally going to have an angel as a tour guide. And God, Jesus wants him to write all this down. And then he's going to send it out as a letter to seven churches. Now, these seven churches are experiencing the same thing that John has experienced. They are being persecuted. They are suffering. The Roman Empire is trying to put them underneath its thumb. And so this is a letter to encourage persecuted Christians. They're just trying to be faithful. And everything and everyone around them is making that difficult. And so I don't really think we read Revelation like that. We read it like the same way we watch National Treasure, which is like, is there something on the back of this that's going to be a code that I need to wear glasses? I mean, if you could come up with some Revelation wearing glasses uh, to, uh, to help people understand it, you would be a billionaire. There's no doubt about it. But the truth is, it's just a simple letter. I mean, it's, it's complicated in its nature, but it's, it's simple in the fact that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to show you some things, write it down, and send it to these suffering Christians. And so I think that we can learn some things about what it means to be a kingdom church from these seven churches. And so you can see in your listening guide, I thought we'd go through them. And I mean, we're going to read a lot of scripture. I'm going to stop and let you fill in the blanks here. Because in all seven of the churches, there's an opportunity for Jesus to encourage them, to correct them. And then he makes them a promise at the end of their section. So you can see all three of these things, an encouragement, a correction, and a promise. So let's start with the church in Ephesus. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is a word from Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here's his encouragement to the church of Ephesus. You can summarize this in your own words, of course. You just heard it and read it for yourself. He encourages their deeds, their hard work, their sound doctrine, and their endurance. He, he says, you guys don't like the... the I'm going to say these names 14 different ways because they're hard to read in public. Right? But the, the Nicolaitans um, were, a, were a group, they were a sect, an, an offshoot of authentic and orthodox Christianity that essentially said, hey, let's merge our two cultures together. Let's merge the culture of the kingdom and the culture of the Roman Empire. So it's okay to worship idols. It's okay to be promiscuous in every way imaginable. All of it just mixes together. And the Ephesians were like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. They had sound doctrine. But there was a correction. Jesus says, you've forsaken the love that you had at first. They need to consider how far they've fallen. They need to repent and do the things they did at first. And here's the promise in verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So they get the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the promise. The church in Smyrna. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Yikes. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as your victor's crown. Verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So the church of Smyrna, their encouragement was their faithfulness. Notice they didn't receive any correction. And the promise is that they will not be hurt by the second death. I mean, imagine what it would be like to get that letter in the mail here and, and Jesus saying, hey, a, a handful of you, you're, you're going to go to jail. This a handful of people from Bayou City are going to end up in jail. Uh, but don't worry, I'm with you. Um, it's only going to last 10 days. But if you're faithful to the end, you're going to receive the victor's crown. I mean, wouldn't you be looking around to think like, oh, I think it should be Chalobi. Right? <laughs> I'm going to nominate some people. Right. Verse 12. This is the church of Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have also, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So to the church of Pergamum, their encouragement is that they've remained true to Jesus even though they face severe opposition. I mean, they live in the city of Satan. And what that means is that that town is being so obviously ruled by the ruler of this age. Remember, that's one of the names in the scripture that's given to Satan. He's the ruler of this age that we are living in. That's why all of our systems are broken. It doesn't matter what our intent is in the beginning. It doesn't matter what the government's hope is really for it. That system is going to eventually be broken because it's a part of this age. And only things that are from the age to come are going to be whole in the way that our souls long for it because Satan is the ruler of this age and in whatever town they are in, in Pergamum, Jesus does not care for this city. He says it is where Satan lives. That means they are facing incredible persecution. But he says, hey, good job. You're remaining faithful. Even though Antipas, one of my faithful witnesses, was put to death right there in front of you guys. You guys didn't give in. You didn't turn back. They're... Um, There are some things that he holds against them, though. There are some among them who have bad doctrine. They hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So there's a a group among them that is teaching, again, this theology that you can blend sexual immorality, idolatry, and the culture of the kingdom of Jesus. It kind of all fits. Don't worry about it. You know, it'll be fine. Anything goes. Which you can, you could find that in our churches today. You could find people who are like, hey, we don't judge anybody. It's, it's cool. You, you do you, we're going to do me, and you do you, and it, it'll all work out. And Jesus' word to them is, hey, don't do that. The stakes are too high. You're being persecuted. So, so you need to correct that. And the promise, this is an interesting promise to the church in Pergamum. They're going to receive hidden manna. um, And they're going to receive a stone with a new name on it. Which is great. I'm not like super committed to Curtis, you know. (laughs) Number four, Thyatira. Notice how I didn't really explain what any of that means. I don't know. (laughs) Anybody who tells you they know is a liar. (laughs) The church in Thyatira, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Wouldn't that be great for Jesus to say about us? Hey, you guys had such a strong start, but wow, you're doing even more in faithfulness now than you were. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Jezebel was an evil queen from the Old Testament. She was a real thorn in the side for God's people. This is not that Jezebel, but Jesus is giving some group or some even teacher this label because she's causing problems for the church. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I may circle back around to this in just a second, but already at three of these churches, uh, sexual immorality is mentioned. And I know if we're not reading the scripture in the right frame of mind, it can seem like, man, God is just really picking on that thing, you know. And, and we live in a culture where you're not allowed to judge. And some of that's really good. You don't want to be a judgmental person. Even Jesus spoke against that. Um, but uh, what it does is it just get, puts us in an attitude where it's like, hey, fine, whatever, whatever. Uh, 
whatever you want to do, that's fine. Who am I to, to say anything about it? But the reason that the, the New Testament as a whole, and specifically these churches in Revelation, gets brought up, I mean, think about, I mean, Jesus is speaking to churches specifically. So if he wrote us a letter here, I would imagine that he would have something specific to say to us, right? And, and he's mentioning the sexual immorality because uh, the sexual, sex, sexual, sexual ethics of the, the kingdom of God are part of what makes us distinct in our culture. Right? Right. I think a lot of us kind of have it backwards that you know, our culture has its sexual ethics and throughout history God has said, oh yeah, that one. Right? Yeah, do that one. Right? The sexual ethics of the 1940s, everybody was happy and pure and chaste. Even when you go back and read that history, that's not uh, true at all. But we have that, like we've taught that, that there were days in America's history where just everybody was clean and perfect and God came along and was like, yeah, hey, you guys do that, keep doing that. And then he gets mad when the culture veers off of that. But the truth is sexual ethics from the scripture, they are an in-house discussion, right? They are for Christians, and they're for Christians because they make us distinct in this world. Right? It's one of the ways that God says, hey, these are my people. Right? They're, they're different from everybody else. They're not from here. Right? I remember when this kid Terry moved into uh, our elementary school. Uh, Terry was from California. I grew up in southwest Missouri, so he was from southern California. You could not find a place in America more different from the place that I grew up in than, than southern California. And he was the stereotype to the T. I mean, this is the early 90s, and so he had crazy wild pants, and he had this like black flowing hair. Uh, it always comes back to hair for me. I don't know why. <laughs> But I was so jealous because it would just, mine would just kind of just get bigger, you know, like kind of just get bigger. Uh, but his would flow back and he, was just, he skated when skating was uh, super cool. And uh, man, he, he was just so different. And it made sense because he was not from where we were from. Right? Sexual ethics are like this. The ones that we read in the New Testament. It is God saying these people are not from here. Right? Um, and, and, and it's different. We like to take our sexual ethics and then we just you know, judge everybody outside the church, but it's really, it's for the people who belong to the kingdom, right? And, and it starts here. In fact, one of the scriptures says, uh, you know, judgment starts in the household of God. Before we start pointing fingers outside of the church, we should say, are we organized and are we living the way that God wants us to live, right? And, and so when you read all the stuff in the New Testament about sex and all of that, what's, what kind God blesses and, and all of that, it's not a sex talk, so we're gonna move on, but... Don't read it as, oh, God is making a bunch of rules for me, um, and that's unfair. We read it as this is one of the ways that God is saying my people are going to be separate from people in the rest of the world. That doesn't make it easy to obey all the time. It doesn't, but that's, that's where it comes from, and that's why Jesus keeps bringing it up, because he's saying to these churches, you guys are supposed to be separate, but the way you're behaving, it just looks like you're just a regular Roman, you know. There's nothing distinct about you in this way. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will, impose, I will not impose any other burden on you, verse 25, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the church in Thyatira, they were encouraged because of their love, their deeds, their faith, their service, and their perseverance. Their correction is they're tolerating Jezebel and her teaching but the promise is they're going to have authority over nations and Jesus is going to give them the morning star. Which wouldn't that mean a lot to you in the face of persecution when you feel like everybody is, is out to harm you that Jesus promised, hey, one day you're going to come out on top. One day you're going to be ruling. You're not always going to be ruled. Verse uh, number five to the church in Th Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Man, may it never be about our church. You look like you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, to the church of Sardis, their encouragement is, a few of them are faithful. Not all of them, but a few of them. Their correction is that they need to wake up. They look like they are alive, but they are not. And the promise is, if they will wake up, Jesus will not remove their names from his book of life and he will acknowledge them before his father and the angels. To the church of Philadelphia, verse 7, chapter 3. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed you before, placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church of Philadelphia, They have not denied Christ, even though they have a little strength. They're not at full strength. They only have a little strength, but they're holding steady. They don't receive any correction. And the promise is Jesus is going to make them a pillar in the temple of God. And then he's going to write God's name on them, the new Jerusalem's name on them, and then his new name on them. And finally, the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to the church in Laodicea, their encouragement was no encouragement. Their correction was they are lukewarm and Jesus is thinking about spitting them out. But if they will change and be transformed, he will reward them with a promise to sit on his throne with him. So when I was thinking about these things, I think there are four ways to summarize all seven of these messages to help us know what it can be like to be a kingdom church. Of course, this list is not exhaustive, but I do think it's helpful. Number one, a kingdom church is awake and alive. The 
The church that I grew up in was very small, country church in southwest Missouri. When I say country, I mean like way out in the country. And uh, it, it started as a brush arbor church, which was a, 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 a traveling preacher would come through the countryside. This is in the late 1800s. And, uh, and they would get people that lived in those farms and those communities would come together. But you kind of need a place to aim, like where are we going to meet? And so they would collect a bunch of uh, limbs and trees and all these things and they would just make a big pile and they would have church there for a series of evenings and then that preacher would move on. And so that happened outside of the town that I grew up in. And, uh, and so people met there for a series of meetings and then they said, hey, let's just start a church right here. And so they started a church way out in the country. My great, great grandparents were a part of it. My great grandparents were a part of it. Uh, my grandparents were a part of it. And then my parents were a part of it. And so this is a church that I grew up in. But you can imagine, you know, uh, the, the not a lot of people living out in the country and so the church was not very big and by the time that I was probably 10 or 11 years old there were 30 uh, consistent people in it. One night we get a phone call at our house. I've told you this story before but I'm going to tell it to you again. Uh, and uh, I can tell this is old school. This is landlines. I could tell um, as my mom was talking in our kitchen that something bad had happened and she told us, got off the phone and told us that that night it was kind of late, kind of late for somebody to be calling. Some teenagers were out having some fun and they, they, they lit our church on fire and it had burnt to the ground. Then they got in their car and they had driven down the, the country highway about uh, 15 minutes or so, found another little church and burnt it to the ground. Uh, we were a small church, not a huge bank account, not big tithes and offerings, no billionaires uh, that are going to little churches out in southwest Missouri. And so this was a pretty bad deal. There was not a backup plan. There was not a rainy day uh, kind of fun. People were volunteering to mow the church lawn. That's essentially where we were at. Uh, and so the next Sunday, you know, there's nowhere to meet. Literally, there's nowhere to meet. It was burnt and charred and wet. Uh, and, uh, and so a church also out in the country said, hey, we have a fellowship hall. Why don't you guys just come and, and, and meet there? And so this is about six or seven days after the, the church had burned down. And so we met at this little church, Rose Hill Baptist Church outside of Willard, Missouri. And we met in the fellowship hall. And uh, there was electricity in the air. Right? Which you would think that there would be nothing but mourning, sadness. And there was some of that. But as we gathered that day, I still have a distinct memory of it, even though I was just in my preteen years. Because either the church wasn't going to exist or God was going to do something. And I think it had been a long time. Maybe since they were meeting around a brush arbor where they were in a position where it's like either we quit or God will do something. Right. And that, it was at that moment, I think, that our church woke up and became alive. Now, ideally, no one has to burn down your church building for that to happen. But better to be a church with no church than to have all the amenities and be dead. Right? I mean, look at what he says to the church in Sardis. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Right? What that tells me is maybe at the end of the day, Jesus is the only one who can tell what church is alive and what church is dead. That you can have dynamic worship and helpful, entertaining teaching, vibrant ministries. He says, I know your deeds. And that word deeds, he's used for all of the churches. And in most times, it's something positive. Yeah. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but, but you are dead. A kingdom church is awake and it is alive and it's alive with the light of Christ. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is walking among the the seven lampstands. The, those are the seven churches. Right? And that's where churches get their life from Jesus walking around. The life that he has offered us, that new life that comes through new birth, which is only possible through his life, death, his resurrection, his ascension and his sharing with us the age to come. That's where our life comes from. Here in America, people are super smart. Everywhere people are super smart. But in America, I think our churches have been trained that we could give an appearance of life without actually, not actually having the life of Christ. Right? I mean, you see what we do every Sunday. It's not rocket science. 
right? You probably know some great musicians. You have somebody at your work who is a good public speaker. You just feed them a couple of uh, phrases to say. If they can just pretend to pray. Anybody could put on a pretty convincing American church service. But it's the life of Christ that determines whether a church is alive or dead. It's a church coming together week after week, moment after moment, and, and asking, where is Jesus walking among us today? He's moving among the lampstands. I don't want to miss him. He's here somewhere. And that's something that not just the leader can do or a couple of staff people or a couple of elders. That's all of us together coming before I say anything to God. I, I need to locate Jesus as he walks among the churches. And he promised us wherever there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am. That's his words. And so he's here somewhere. And, and, and we want his life. Awake and alive. The second thing you'll see in your listening guide, a kingdom church wars against temptation. A kingdom church wars against temptation. And, and you notice specifically the, the temptation that Jesus wants them to resist these seven churches that, that he keeps bringing up is teaching that leads to immorality. It's not just immorality. Right? He's not just saying, hey, I condemn you because you're practicing sexual immorality. What he's bothered by is that the churches are allowing the teaching that produces that immorality and that unrighteousness. And so it's a good warning for us as we go about our lives, because there's all kinds of teaching. There are millions of teachers in the world, and you're going to encounter a bunch when you check your social media uh, as soon as I'm done talking. Maybe even some of you are checking it right now. There's, just, there's, there's teaching on there. If you're on Twitter, Twitter is nothing but teaching. Right? It's teaching in little sound bites, little, little characters. Right? There's teaching all around us, and we want to be careful what teaching we are tolerating. Is this teaching leading me to unrighteousness? Is this teaching uh, having me relax my standards of godliness? And forget other people's standards of godliness. Is it relaxing your standards of godliness? Did you used to care about righteousness at this level and now under some influence, maybe known or unknown, you're like, ah, I don't know, maybe this isn't that bad. What Jesus stands against is not just that relaxing of godliness, but the teaching that got you there, the influence that got you there. And so this is how we can help one another. We can say to one another, hey, I don't know. Mm, that sounds, are you sure? Hey, be careful. The, 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 more, the more that I come to know Christ, I'm 38, right? So I'm not like arrived yet. But the more that I've come to know Christ, the, the more I see that he cares about my personal righteousness. And if as a church we are coming to know Christ and Christ more, our level of godliness should be going up. And it, it's not out of legalism. It's not out of, hey, follow the rules. It's out of Jesus is Lord and our Lord has said there are things to do and there are things to not do. And so let's, let's follow him together. Amen. Number three, a kingdom church is filled with love. You know, this is what offsets uh, any spiritual pride that comes from the last thing. Because when you start avoiding, it's easy then to go, hey, how come you're not avoiding temptation? I must be better than you. And you go to a lot of churches that give off that vibe. Hey, we're better than you. You suck. Come and be less sucky with us over here. <laughs> uh, who wants to be a part of a, a church like that? But if we are filled with love, right, that's what he's upset about. With the 
church where he says, you've forsaken your first love, right? You, I have this against you, chapter 2, verse 4. You have forsaken the love you have at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, turn there really quickly. This is a verse that you're familiar with, but I want to look at it together. In this context. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is what our gathering should be filled with. Whether there's 500 people like there are in here tonight or there's five people, there should be a spurring on of love and good work. So ideally, tonight you should be more ready and able and willing and inspired to love God more and to love your neighbor more because we've been together. And if you go to a church or you're part of church gatherings where that is not happening, then we are not operating correctly. Um, If the only message we are ever giving out is behave, 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 and we're not more inspired by God's power and spirit to love more, and to do more good deeds, then we're not doing it right. And it says, as Jesus' return gets closer and closer and closer, keep meeting together more and more and more and more and more. Now, when I think about how much my grandparents went to church and then how much we are willing to go to church, I feel kind of convicted. Because they were at church all the time. I mean, it was like crazy. Like kind of ridiculous, honestly. And, and I think we've swung so far the other way that we, we may have swung too far. Yeah. You know, where now it's like, um, I can't even give an hour. Amen. You know. But if you're not gathering with the people of God, followers of Christ, then who is going to spur you on to love and good deeds? And then what happens is what happens to the church that's mentioned here, our love will grow cold. And once our love grows cold for God and for neighbor, then it's hard to follow Christ at all. So as Jesus gets closer and closer, we need to actually ramp up how often we are together. And so I just want to real specifically encourage you, however much you are gathering with the saints in the spring, could you gather a little bit more in the fall? And God will provide those ways for you. And we have lots of opportunities here at church. But maybe even for some of you, it's just I come inconsistently and now you're going to come consistently. God will speak to you and lead you what that looks like. But it says that we should gather more and more the closer we get to Jesus so that we can be, Jesus returns so we can be spurred on towards love and, and good deeds. And I know sometimes some of us have a real bad taste in our mouth because we have been around the church and the church has not been great. And, and that's a fact. Um, and the only thing that I know to tell you is to be like, mm, it's going to happen because you are not great all the time either. But hopefully if we are all growing together, there is a different experience that you'll have than when we are just attending together. Right. A kingdom church hurts people less than a worldly church. Right. So ideally, if you gather more and more with us, you won't be hurt more and more. But I can't promise that because we're humans. Uh, And we're warring against temptation, but that doesn't always mean we're victorious. So don't give up on the church. You know, if you said to me, um, you couldn't say that you were my best friend and know me well. I don't think if you didn't know Amanda. 
We could have an incredibly strong relationship, but you couldn't really say that you know me totally unless you know her because you can't know me apart from her. She's my wife and uh, she knows all of my history and we have all this shared experience. And in the same way, we can't say we truly know Christ without also knowing his church, which he has called his bride that he is building. And so I want to encourage you to not give up on the church, specifically not to give up on our church, even though it's filled with imperfect people, but let your motivation be, this is one way that I know Christ. And that is something that I want to do, even though I don't always want to know Christ followers. And then finally, a kingdom church is faithful to the very end. Kingdom church is faithful to the very end. When you read Jesus' letter to these seven churches, it's clear that's what's on his heart, is endure, keep going, don't give up, don't give in, keep going, keep going, keep going. He wants them to endure. You may have seen, if you, if you got here early on the, the, the screen when you were coming in, to pray for three people from Kazakhstan. I read uh, on Monday, I think it was, I have this app uh, that uh, sends out prayer requests for the persecuted church around the world. And, uh, and so I opened it up Monday during my, my prayer time, my morning time, and, and I was going to pray for whatever had popped up. And it was uh, three people who had been arrested in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is uh, next door to Russia, and so uh, it kind of runs hot and cold when it comes to persecution. Sometimes it's fine, uh, sometimes it's not, and so I think it's kind of complicated to be a follower of Jesus there. You don't know what the rules are, when can we gather, when, when can't we? And, uh, and, and on the last weekend, uh, they had had church, and uh, somebody wanted to be prayed for. We're getting ready to, to pray for one another, and Somebody had been prayed for, and the pastor and his wife and another uh, pastor laid hands on this person and prayed for them. And somehow the government found out about that, and they came and they arrested the pastor and his wife and that other pastor, and then they seized all of their things. And, like, I'm a pastor, and I have a pastor's wife, and we pray for people every single Sunday and lay our hands on them. And it didn't dawn on me one time to think last Sunday I could go to jail for this in some places around the world. Right. Um, in that same app this morning, it was um, a prayer request from Chinese Christians. And, and the thing that they most often are saying, hey, pray for us, pray for us, pray for us, is just uh, pray for us to have endurance, pray for us to be faithful. Pray for us to keep running the race. Right? It's hard for us to really put our mind in that place because that's not our culture. Nobody, none of us, not me, not you, thought, I wonder if we're going to get arrested when we're at church today. But there are brothers and sisters who gathered somewhere in the world the last 24 hours who did think that. Right? And so we read these passages and just skim over them because they don't seem that relevant. Endure, be faithful to the end. But they're incredibly relevant. And it's not just faithfulness, don't deny Christ. It's be faithful with his mission. It's be faithful to share the gospel. See, that's the, always the thing when you read about the persecuted in the New Testament and even you read about the stories of the persecuted uh, in our day today, there's always this uh, fact behind what's being written that they are out there sharing the gospel. They are out there, even though there's opposition. They are talking about Jesus. They are winning people to the kingdom. That's why they're being persecuted. Nobody wants to persecute failures, right? I mean, what does it matter, right? But be faithful to the end. Right? And be faithful no matter what our culture is like around us. Remember from the first week we mentioned Constantine, he was an emperor in the 300s, he was the first Roman emperor to be a follower of Christ or to claim to be Christian, and so he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and it didn't go great after that. Right. But ever since then, we've sort of had what scholars call this Constantine assumption. This is super nerdy. Um, obviously, I didn't invent it. I don't even know the word assumption. Um, 
And it is uh, that we really can't be faithful without the support of a government and its structures. Right? We really can't advance the cause of Christ without somebody in power blessing us and, and helping us. Right? And, and so a lot of America was founded on that assumption right? that, uh, that the, the Christianity worked best if governments get behind it, if culture gets behind it. And, and God can use anything. Right? But we need to make sure that we are not tying our faithfulness to some kind of support from outside of this room. So and that's only something that you can know in your heart. Right? Does Christianity only work for you if, if somebody else outside this room is affirming it? And if it does, it's going to be hard to be faithful to the end. Or it would be hard to be faithful in another context. And what we're reading from Chinese Christians is, hey, whether our government says yes or no, we are saying yes. Right? What we're reading from Christians of Kazakhstan, whether our government says yes or no, we are saying yes. Whether our culture supports us or, or doesn't, we are, we are in this, to be faithful to the end. Remember, we are an island. Followers of Jesus are an island. We're an island right now floating on top of the United States. We are not from here. Our citizenship is from another place. And in this island, Jesus is Lord. And in this island, there is the culture of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Because that is the kingdom of God. Wherever, whoever, whenever, and wherever Jesus' lordship is acknowledged and obeyed. That is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, and the age to come. And that is where we are from. And so our gatherings, they need to reflect that. They need to reflect that with life and being alive and awakened. They need to reflect that, that we together we avoid temptation. They need to reflect that in the way that we love God and we love other people. And it needs to reflect that, that week in and week out, we're encouraging one another to just keep being faithful. No matter what support we get or don't, don't get, we're encouraging one another. Be faithful to the end, no matter what that end is. Let's pray.